0: There's an old fable, or allegory, called The Weaver Woman. And it goes like this. In a cave sits an old woman weaving a long bolt of cloth made of threads, beads, etc. And that cloth is the past, present, and future of the world. One day, a wild dog runs into the cave, grabs at the cloth, tugs hard, and the section the woman is weaving frays, pulls apart, and falls onto the ground delighted in his ability to cause such chaos and destruction to the future of mankind the wild dog steps back howling and heads out snarling and salivating with delight but rather than scold a dog just before the dog leaves the old woman turns to him you have destroyed the lovely future i was weaving she says but thanks to you i now have the opportunity to weave a future even more beautiful and enlightened than ever i should add that after the dog left The weaver woman hopefully installed a door, but it seems to me this allegory speaks directly to the situation we find ourselves in with the pandemic. With destruction comes opportunity. Can we pick up the pieces and weave a future so beautiful we can actually thank it? Quite a challenge. In the allegory, the wild dog wreaks havoc then leaves. The pandemic has brought destruction, but is still with us. And before we can think too much about the future, we have to figure out how to get rid of the COVID-19. Juliette Kayyem, who is our guest today, has spent over 15 years managing complex policy initiatives and organizing government responses to major crises in both state and federal government. She served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and the Homeland Security Advisor to the Governor of Massachusetts. She is founder of Kayyem Solutions, which provides strategic advice in cybersecurity, resiliency planning, risk management, mega-event security, and infrastructure protection. She is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she is faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. She is a Pulitzer finalist for her opinion columns in the Boston Globe, and she's the author of the best-selling book, Security Mom. Well, Juliette, I want to first say thank you so much for joining us for this. It's a real pleasure to have you. Oh, well, thank
1: you for having me.
0: My first question would be, as the author of Security Mom, yeah. what are you doing different than the rest of us? Do you have uh, any advice beyond sheltering in place and hand washing, et cetera?
1: So the advice I give people now is this will be long, and it will be long longer than you think it's going to be. In other words, everyone's looking for dates for sheltering in place. That's like the end of the beginning. We are looking at a couple years of adaptive recovery, is what I call it, which is we will be living with the virus, right? I mean, in other words, Mm -hmm. the, the vaccine won't come. And so my kids' lives will be impacted significantly. This will change the nature of travel. It will change the nature of their experience of global travel. And so I do think about that a lot and what it means for them in terms of the future, because it's not, when am I going back to school? This is, what are the next couple of years like?
0: Right. Is your feeling that we're basically in this mode until there's a vaccine or a cure or near cure?
1: It's a great question, and this is so unique. So in normal disasters that I've worked, you have a disaster, you have the enemy, so let's call it a hurricane or a tornado. It comes through a community, and there's an immediate response, But the hurricane or tornado is gone, right? You're not living with it. This is very different. And so we're not going to be living like this forever because the good news is is we did not overwhelm hospital capacity. Our ability to surge despite all of the challenges was able to adapt to at least the onslaught of coronavirus we have changed our own behavior, probably permanently or for a very long time in terms of masks and social distancing being the norm. There'll be better treatments, there'll be better testing, one hopes, and then ultimately a vaccine. So once we get out of this period, and some jurisdictions are the next year to two years, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, uh, mm-hmm. will be this adaptive, every day is different Things like we'll wear masks on airplanes, we'll go to restaurants that used to seat 100, now seat 25. And I think that's really important for people to get their head around because there's this idea of, you know, everyone says opening up, opening up. First of all, opening up is just a misleading term because it means different things in different jurisdictions, right? So Georgia says we're going to do tattoo parlors, that's opening up (laughs) and seems reckless, Michigan says we're going to let people go on their boats on the lakes to just let people let off steam. That seems less reckless, right? And so yes. we're using this term, there'll be more opening up, but it will be different. I mean, it just will be. Everyone will be playing golf. Let's just put it that way.
0: My understanding of how we got to this place now where we've flattened the curve, if indeed we have, or at least in some places that we have, is that sheltering in place it was the key component of that. Yeah. So if sheltering in place is lifted, aren't we looking at another spike?
1: We are. um, More people will suffer because of the lack of federal, suffer, I'm sorry, more people will die because of the lack of a strong federal presence. If you've heard me or seen what I've been writing, you know, I sort of, I don't linger. You know, it is what it is. As I like to say, it's the president we have, not the one we deserve. And so you sort of have to think, okay, well, how do I adapt to that? And I think governors and mayors have adapted to the same. So it is true we will have a higher death rate, a fatality rate. It's already bad. It's a tragedy, and it's embarrassing when you compare it to other countries, and it's not accurate. I mean, I think if you look at what we call excess death rates, what were the last five marches? You're looking at numbers that could put us well over 300,000 deaths. We're already at 60,000 today, I think, or close to it. Right. But I do think that what's going to save us is the American public's risk calculation and employers' risk calculation at this stage. I mean, you know, many employers are not bringing people back, not putting them on transportation. If this worked and you didn't have a loss of productivity, why would you bring people back while well, we still don't have a handle on it? As I said, we'll have more tools so that we don't have that that spike that you saw in every jurisdiction. We'll be able to figure out who has it. We'll be better at isolating We had no choices in early March. The failure to have adequate testing and identification and prepare was the original sin. And it was a sin created by this White House that refused to sort of acknowledge what people like me, who, as I said, I'm not a pandemic expert, I'm not a public health official, I am a disaster and crisis management expert, and I could see what was going to happen. So we're just compensating for that original sin now, but I think we'll be better it will still be bad, but it will be better in the months and years ahead.
0: Right. Boy, it's a grim I, I know, future for a while. It yeah, It
1: is. I mean, it is. I say it matter-of-factly, but that's people like me are trained to do that. I know It's not like I don't have my moments of waking up at three in the morning and thinking about the life I'm having and the life my kids are sort of quite conscious of this.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess this brings me to my second question, which is if we could wave a magic wand and put you in charge of the federal response to this, Yeah. what would you have done? What would you do now? I mean, probably more important, what would you do now? But I'd also like to hear about what we could have done.
1: Yeah, I think Trump followed. He did not lead. So I think the idea that, you know, could he have gotten us galvanized in January, February? Yes. I think he got people to try disinfectants as a cure. And he also alone is probably one of the few people who can get governors like Kemp in Georgia or Texas governor to actually take things seriously. I mean, he alone had that capacity. So a couple of things I would have, you know, would have done, and there's plans for this, right? So what is the federal government good at? It's good at communication, intelligence sharing, and the delivery of things that states otherwise couldn't do. So you could have just done all those things. You could have prepared the American public, employers who kept putting workers at risk. You get them ready for working from home so it doesn't happen overnight. You would prepare governors and mayors who were holding major events. Think about Mardi Gras, happened in late February, well after some countries had already closed. And you would have had national guidance to begin to align sheltering in place, but as well as begin to utilize the Defense Production Act and other statutes that would bring the full weight of the federal government to bear on what we already knew was going to be the country's first 50 state disaster. Um, Now I would be much stronger on, if there were such a thing as national guidance or anything, a strategy you would obviously focus on what's the federal government good for is testing and supply chain. You just make sure that that supply chain is going this sort of like, well, they needed 10 gloves and we gave them 11. Like Mm -hmm. this thing is going to last a long time. And the stuff doesn't go bad. So why we're not just massively manufactured I and mean, gloves don't go bad. So we have extra, no big deal. Right. So just things like that. And then I think one thing that we're not thinking about to be the last thing is just the okay, so we have this period, and then we're gonna have the adaptive recovery period where things will just be strange for us for several years. I think they will begin to feel familiar in the same way that putting on a mask when I go outside already feels familiar and not having it feels unfamiliar, which is amazing that that happens in two weeks, but is the vaccine distribution. Uh, once we get a vaccine, everyone's going to want it. And if you're the federal government, you better start thinking about not just who goes first. It's obvious who goes first our, our frontline workers and our first responders and the military, but who goes second, third, fourth, and then most importantly, who goes last. And I think the existential question is, do you, give vaccines because it doesn't come in one box, right? It's going to come in waves and we're in competition with other countries is do we prioritize as a country our senior citizens who are more at risk of dying from it or our younger Americans who are more likely to be carriers that I'm not answering for you. I don't know uh. the answer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that right. will be, that will be one that, uh, that someone else. Has done.
0: Right. Did you see that article in the New York Times yesterday about the possible vaccine that they're developing at Oxford?
1: Yes, yes. And so we want to be hopeful. I'm going to take a lot of deep breaths on these. We've got, what, 60 vaccine trials going on, although this one seems very promising. But remember, even if they identify it, we've got to manufacture it globally and then distribute it to a nation that's very cranky. So if there's any reason to vote against having a second term, it would be you really don't want this president in charge of the vaccine distribution plan because it's going to all go to Texas and Florida.
0: One last question, since you're an expert in cybersecurity, homeland security, what other things are we more vulnerable to now that Mm. maybe people aren't thinking about because of the virus?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to have a moderate to high hurricane season. So we have to think about our capacity of response and what our shelter is going to look like in the age of coronavirus. Right. What's our supply chain look like? So I worry about that. And then we have an election this year too, of which there's you know, no reason to think that the Russians and the Chinese and, and anyone else are going to want to do various things to make a country that already seems not resilient, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we look like to the world is 60,000 deaths. I mean, it's so shocking. But even less resilient through our democratic process. So those are the, you know, I can't get you past 2020. I'm trying, right. but I'm just, I'm staying put. You're like, if we get through December this year, we'll all go celebrate. But those are the two biggies coming up.
0: Right, right. Just wanted to ask you one other thing to follow up. Yeah. You mentioned there could be as many as 300,000 deaths, and that's based yeah. on the past months, you know, years back. Yeah. So that would explain then the undercounting of the number of cases.
1: So why I think 300,000 is not extreme and may even be undercounting when you look at some other modeling, which puts it quite high, is one, we are ending social distancing way too soon, so we won't be able to identify it. And two, we are undercounting. We just know it. We're undercounting our prisons. We undercounted in January, February. It's clear that people were dying from this. Um, I'm sure you have friends that say, you know, I was really feeling weird and Yes. For a couple days in February. Yeah, I mean, it, it was around. I mean, we're fighting these cases now. Um, and it just means that we are really blind on the numbers. But to figure out the case fatality rate, what people see as CFR. We don't know what the numerator is, meaning we don't know how many people are actually dead, and we don't know the denominator, how many people are infected. So we'll have no idea. And this is like Puerto Rico you know, on steroids, right? We still don't know how many people died on a small island because of Hurricane Maria a few years back. This is like, imagine the whole nation.
0: Right. And then one last, one last thing. I have a friend who is a bit of a COVID denier. He keeps posting articles with, with a group of us, and one of them was from the Wall Street Journal, basically proving in his mind that sheltering in place did no good whatsoever. Does that in any way ring true to you? I
1: mean, no. So this, I mean, your, your friends. let me talk to him. Your friend is um, suffering from the tiresome, boorish Fancy people get to say this male, in some ways, phenomenon known as the preparedness paradox, right? In other words, people like me are screaming from the rooftops, get ready, get ready. Mm -hmm. People look at us like, what the hell are you talking about? Then people start to get ready as they see that the threat comes. The threat, therefore, is less than it would have been. And to your friend, I don't know what they think about 60,000 deaths. 60,000 deaths is still bad. Uh, And then they say, look, why the heck did all those people start yelling from the rooftops? You saw people who follow Fox News, they've sort of pivoted to this mantra. I'm sure it's being reflected in the Wall Street Journal. And it's dangerous because obviously it means that we'll release our preparedness. We will give up on our preparedness too soon.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So tell him he's a cliche. Tell him he's just a cliche. (laughs) That's all he is. He thinks he's smart. He's just a cliche. Right. And I think the proof is this. Every country that is aggressively socially distanced has either beaten the curve or eradicated it, killed it as they did in New Zealand. New Zealand has no cases. Wow. (laughs) That's leadership.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. really appreciate it.
1: I'll talk to you soon. Bye. The
0: debate on how to end this pandemic is healthy and necessary but we are now over eight weeks into a multi-nation response and some strategies are starting to show effectiveness, others are not. Sweden has adopted a herd immunity strategy. There, the elderly and most vulnerable are sheltered in place while everyone else is going about life pretty much as normal. Social distancing is encouraged, but schools, gyms, cafes, bars, and restaurants remain open. The government's theory is that once 60% or more of the Swedish population becomes infected and thereby hopefully immune, the spread of the virus will slow to a halt. As of this podcast, over 20,000 Swedes have been infected with COVID-19 and over 12% of those have died. I'll say it again, 12% of those infected have died. By contrast, look at New Zealand. In mid-March, as the number of cases in that country topped 100. But before they had any deaths from COVID-19, New Zealand put in place some of the strictest shelter-in-place restrictions in the world. Now, only six weeks later, as Ms. Kayyem mentioned, there are no new cases in New Zealand. None. If the United States can be said to have a strategy at all, it's somewhere between Sweden's and New Zealand's. And we have the most infections and the most deaths in the world and a death rate from the virus of over 5%. Last podcast, I discussed a plan by Dr. Harvey Feinberg, which he called 10 Weeks to Crush the Curve. Dr. Feinberg was formerly dean of Harvard School of Public Health, provost of Harvard University, and president of what is now the National Academy of Medicine. I posted an abbreviated version of Dr. Feinberg's plan on The Summit by Tom Schulman on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please find that plan. Send it to all your friends, your senators, the White House rather than, quote, opening up the country, putting an undue strain on an already overburdened healthcare system and watching the death toll climb. Let's put Dr. Feinberg's plan in place and beat this virus.